Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. I'm Irina Baragan. I'm a deputy editor of website Argentura.ru and I'm a Russian investigative journalist. I'm Andrei Soldatov. I'm a Russian investigative journalist. Uh, please listen to a Visegrad podcast. Right. Uh, listen to the interview we have had on the sides of Leonard Mary Conference in Tallinn, Estonia, uh, with those two fantastic Russian experts, uh, authors of the book, compatriots that we have interviewed and published the interview uh, probably three years earlier, uh, just when they launched. Uh, but now let's focus on on the uh, outlook, weekly outlook uh, by Visegrad Insight. Uh, to, uh, together with me, sitting here are Miles Maftian and Kamil Jaronczyk. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. Um, and, um, and this is basically what we think is important this week for uh, democratic security in Central Europe. Um, First, uh, let me say that uh, there were discussions and there will be ongoing discussions uh, related to the Conference on the Future of Europe. Uh, we have just published three texts, uh, one by Martin L. on EU, New EU in the World. Uh, that was actually some time ago in relationship to the conference. I published my own on, on the future drive for more integration within the EU with a strictly speaking that the focus is on, on Eurozone, fulfilling Eurozone um, accession promise uh, from, from the treaties by the three countries of Visegrad that are not yet in Eurozone. With some quotes and after a conference we organize in Poland on, on this topic, um, you can see a momentum building up, especially uh, also visible in the circles that were liberal libertarian critics of, of Eurozone accession. And now they completely change over the last two months, which uh, doesn't mean automatically will change the policy as a country and the government. But uh, there is a renewed discussion on, on further and stronger integration. We have had, of course, uh, Emmanuel Macron's comments also about some crazy ideas from, from the point of view of uh, his, um, his supporters and fans in Central Europe as well, even more, of course, from, from the side of, of his critics about the new Europe as a, as a result of the Conference on the Future of Europe with some ambivalent claims about uh, zones of, of friends of Europe as, a, as an idea for integration. And then there is uh, Zuzana Keplova, who also uh, digs into the conference on the future of Europe and the, the biggest deliberative experiment ever um, and how it has happened in Slovakia with actually some positive notes on, um, on this experiment. And uh, Victoria Serdult finally coming up this week, um, uh, the leading uh, Hungarian journalist uh, reporting on international affairs, foreign policy, from our partner magazine, Partner Weekly, Hafauge. Uh, and Victoria also addresses the, this question that the results of the conference and all the input, even despite the efforts of Hungarian governments to bring in more conservative nation state or you know, alternative integration projects have been dominated by voices which are for stronger, more united, more integrated Europe uh, from, from those citizens. So yeah, that's, uh, that, that has been uh, definitely one of the focal points. But in the weekly outlook, I think we have much more to say about uh, the dynamics of the foreign policy talks within Europe 
on both sanctions. As we actually speak, there is a meeting of foreign ministers, um, European foreign ministers that has been prepped by Germany. Germany that has been vet, uh, vetted by uh, Ukrainian foreign minister uh, Kuleba, uh, who basically said, Ukraine certifies Germany as the leader of Europe as of now because you, Germany finally can deliver on on the on the leadership related sanctions, delivers arms, and there are German leaders invited also to to Kiev. So it's a it, that's a, a pivotal moment for um, for German policy, foreign policy also, and the relationship to Central Europe. But what else? What, what do you think where, where the focus uh, of uh, and attention should be placed? Camille? Of course, the foreign minister meetings is um, the focus, but something that is happening as well uh, that I think is uh, quite uh, substantial and um, quite um, uh, preparing for the winter is, um, of course, uh, the gas and how will uh, gas uh, get to Europe without Russia supplying it. And of course, um, uh, we have the US with its uh, saying that it can uh, um, uh, uh, take up demand, the slack they're given by uh, Russia with uh, U- US LNG. And in fact, Bulgaria took the first Bulgaria took the first step, um, uh, making a deal saying that uh, y- it will not uh, be by, um, it can b- supplement its um, uh, needs from the US. Um, Poland uh, actually uh, had a meeting with Slo- uh, the Polish president Andrzej Duda had a meeting with Zuzana Czaputowa, the president of Slovakia, also speaking about gas and in- new interconnector, which would uh, link Polish um, uh, the Polish Baltic pipe and the Polish LNG ports with Slovakia, which could bring uh, uh, gas um, um, from uh, somewhere outside of uh, Russia uh, to Slovakia. And, um, and uh, of course, uh, the Baltic states are constantly talking about uh, uh, can uh, gas um, LNG imports uh, as well as uh, connections with Finland, uh, which uh, although not uh, gas is a small part of Finland's energy mix, still two thirds of that gas comes from Russia. So um, having a Finnish uh, Baltic um, uh, uh, connection would also be import uh, is also important. And wow, how how much it builds into the the, the three seas initiative agenda of connecting the region north-south with uh, exactly interconnectors and bigger infrastructure energy projects. And uh, we're going to be, actually, I have to advertise that element too, we're going to be in Riga um, at the Civil Society Forum focusing on democratic security. Um, the Civil Society Forum is uh, um, is an attachment or is, a, is an add-on as a build-up of the Three Seas Initiative, something that we advocated for last year with our foresight report on that topic. Mm-hmm. So we are very proud also to influence agenda of the regional format. And President Levitz um, of Latvia invited us. Basically, he got inspired by, by, by this idea. And we're going to meet with a lot of stakeholders from civil society and civil society leaders to, to discuss also these issues further. So we'll report back from, back from Riga uh, to you uh, also, uh, what's, uh, where, where many of our teams uh, and, and fellows uh, uh, members will, will participate. But, um, but let's go also uh, to the other topic. I mean, energy security, fine, and all, uh, all important. Uh, the diplomatic effort and, uh, um, uh, as we said, a Ukrainian role in, in it was extremely important and interesting. And at the same time, there are individual countries' responses that got us worried about um, this, uh, the, let's call it the democratic 
democratic uh, setup of how do you respond to some of the Russian um, uh, the communication of or strategic communication uh, related to the war in Ukraine, to the invasion of, of uh, by Moscow. Um, and Miles uh, wrote uh, a really strong and impactful piece that we that we see also many in certain countries disagree with. But I think Miles, this is this is for you now to explain why why we put so much emphasis on this topic of. Um, banning or not banning the Z, Z symbol. This is this is seemingly a, a growing debate across Central Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's a debate that certainly won't be going away anytime soon as well. And it's a debate at the time when emotionalism is very high. And this is one of the elements that you, when you're applying sort of legal measures in this way, you want to make sure that you're not doing so in a very uh, emotional response as well, right? So this is something that when you talk about democratic security, you also have to understand that there are practical security concerns with this too, right? So essentially what we saw um, in April, Germany banned the, the Z symbol from public displays, and then a lot of other Central Eastern European countries did the same. But when you're trying to understand a ban, you, you want to sort of figure out what the underlining legitimate reasons are there to actually understand this. And this is essentially what I did even in my in my thesis. So this is kind of a, a pet project of mine in, in a sense too. I'm, I'm very aware when there is banning happening, when there is freedom of speech, of expression, um, different democratic rights like this actually being used as a sort of method to restrict them for the actual reasons of having democratic security, or mm -hmm. in this in this case, practical security concerns. Miles, this is exactly, I mean, this this is a, a field you've studied, you've studied strategic consequences of different response to, uh, let's call it the, the non-democratic discourse in a democratic setup, how, how to respond to that, how to react to that. But just let's exemplify that. I mean, yes. I, I, I think the most uh, interesting element of response I've seen so far is, is is when there is a display of that symbol and it's a visual communication, which is, we should remember, it's much more powerful than any podcast text. Yes. If you if you see some visual representation of an idea that speaks to you much more. And then what I've seen, it was fascinating to me, a couple of guys started to to play with it, right. to, to use this graphical representation, to put it as a, uh, as a time capsule. So by kind of drawing a, a, a green light Green line uh, uh, connecting, connecting the extreme points of the Z, uh, making it look like there is a, you know time running out, and definitely playing and ridiculing the whole idea. Right. Which then, what's 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 the use of doing that if the Z symbol is banned right. and everybody knows it's banned and somewhere there in the back, but but in, instead what you can do is is is, is transform it and. Right and really make it a battleground. And we've seen this even with certain symbols in, in Poland as well, right? Yeah. Um, taking symbols that were often understood or seen as, let's say, more oppressive or more along those lines, and then actually recaptured in a certain way to yeah. to sort of fight against an idea. So what you're pointing out is, is very important. It's a question of where do we uh, retain militancy? And in, in, in this case, 
okay, let's be clear. We know that the Z symbol is a very powerful symbol. It, it, it's, it's meant to actually spread these sort of extremist viewpoints. But it's always this question of where will it end, right? And what is sort of the most effective means of this? When you're doing, uh, when you're restricting such fundamental rights, and the output of that isn't necessarily getting rid of extremist ideas. So what, where is the battle here? And I think precisely in, in what you've pointed out, that those are the areas where we need to be more militant. Mm -hmm. And it will be actually more effective to do this as opposed to having a legal response where you don't know the, mm. where the line ends. Because even in Berlin, what, what ended up happening by the end of it is, is that they then banned Ukrainian flags mm. at the 9th of May celebrations as well. There are also very powerful um, arguments from, from the liberal tradition against cancel culture and, of course. Uh, and all that we've uh, seen. But now, um, uh, yeah, let, let me again um, point you to this article um, that banning, banning Z symbol is a very bad idea by Miles Maftian. Uh, back on our, I mean, uh, go back to our website if you're uh, on whatever device you're, you're using or, or a computer machine and read it. It's, it's going to be also translated and published in uh, several outlets across Central Europe as a guidance also for, you know, for uh, defending freedom of speech um, in, and, uh, and, and helping to nurture the culture of um, liberty um, among especially editorial um, uh, groups and, and people who are focusing on, on writing and journalism. So, uh, yeah, we, we do recommend that. And now uh, let's move back, uh, I mean, uh, move back in, in the interview that we just recorded in, in Tallinn. There are two fantastic guests uh, uh, who, who will tell about how Russian diaspora in the times of war um, is moving, how is it migrating and what, uh, what we should also think about doing with them instead of just forgetting uh, that Russian um, specialists, IT, basically there is a massive brain drain. Well, uh, let's hear it from our guests more. Guys, I'm so happy that we meet here in Tallinn, Estonia, at the Leonard Mary conference. And I, I recall the, the last time we met uh, in Ferrara, in Italy, at, the, um, at a festival by, by Italian magazine Internazionale, when you just published the book on uh, compatriots, on the uh, Russian migration and the, the, the ways the Russians find themselves in the world. And, and just now you published an article in Foreign, um, Foreign Affairs, also on the four types of migration, of the contemporary migration after the invasion of Ukraine. First, let me ask you, where do you live now? <laughs> hey, first of uh, all, thank you for having us. And uh, right now we live uh, in London, actually uh, right in, in the, like, between two plaques. One is to Lenin, the second one to Herzen. Uh, so it's quite, uh, yeah. It's quite historical for us. <laughs> you know that when we wrote and published the book on Russian emigration, we didn't intend to emigrate. We lived in Moscow and we, we were going to live in yeah. Moscow. But like one year and a half passed and we had to emigrate it because we found out that we are in danger. How, um, uh, how, how was it? It happened in, uh, in the middle of uh, 2020. 
uh, and uh, several things happened uh, with my family and then there were some personal threats. At some moment, the Russian uh, Internet Censorship Agency, which is also in charge of media licensing in Russia, uh, cancelled the license for our website. And it would be a problem, but not such a big problem if they didn't provide a reason for cancelling the license as a death of a physical person, meaning the founder of the website, meaning me. And we took it as a, a real threat. Uh, and several things also happened after that. And finally, yeah, in September 2020, mm -hmm. we left uh, Moscow. I'm happy to see you in good health and and traveling and actually sharing your input and understanding of the of the of how Russians now migrate and what happens to Russians um, in 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 the foreign affairs article you're describing these four reasons and also you're trying to picture the, the paint the sociological picture of 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 the Russians including the numbers so let's start with that uh, how many Russians have migrate, migrated because of the war. Well, first of all, uh, the biggest part of, uh, of, of the new Russian immigration, uh, they are IT people. Uh, mostly uh, IT, really good IT specialists who used to work for Russian companies or for Western companies. Uh, some of them work directly for Western companies because now, thanks to globalization, actually, you can be based in Moscow, in India, work for some company in the United States. Uh, and this category provides the biggest number of, uh, of refugees. Uh, we are talking about 150,000 people with probably 70,000 more projected for the next month. I'm sorry, but you're calling them refugees? We are calling it because these people are the main reason why they decided to leave is that the war started and uh, immediately uh, lots of rumors uh, started circulating that Putin might uh, uh, announce uh, a general mobilization, which means that many of these people of IT uh, specialists might end up uh, in the army uh, sent to Ukraine to fight. They didn't want to go to to the army to fight in Ukraine to die there for no reason uh, and also they of course they were extremely worried about their kids uh, and also that their kids might be drafted into, into the army so that was the main reason why so many people who were not politically active decided to leave and why they feel that it's because of the political developments they need to leave, not because of economic reasons. Mm -hmm. Since the war started, a lot of people had left Russia. Uh, we can, uh, we know for sure that one hundred, according to official statistics, the government statistics, one hundred thousand IT people left Russia. But might be that very possible that much more people left. But there is a there is a biggest group of emigrants. These people they are not political. Our book, uh, the compatriots, it is about political emigration, yes. about political poli opposition politicians, about independent journalists and uh, NGO employees who are who have been in danger in Russia for years. But these people, IT people, they have never been in danger in Russia. I mean politically, because they are not very active politically, they did not stand up against Putin or against the regime. But they they left Russia because they felt they because of uh, partly because of fear of uh, being conscripted to the to the military service and found find out themselves in Ukraine in the war. 
but partly because the new Russia, uh, which happens to be in, in February this year, is not comfortable place for them. And this is not comfortable place for their for their children, and they're just frightened to live in a belligerent society. Mm-hmm. Again, sociologically speaking, we could we can call them many ways, but definitely they migrated, mm-hmm. and they migrated to look for a better place to live. Essentially, they they did not be, change their um, civic engagement, for instance. Maybe not. Maybe they will, because right now they understand that. Uh, while until you are not engaged into fighting the regime and into political situation at all, you can find consequences. Mm-hmm. There are other three groups. Let's just big, paint the, the full picture: are the intellectual elites uh, that you were uh, mentioning. There were the political or NGO activists and journalists, which are also compatriots. And uh, can you remind me what was the... the also business people. Business like people. you have uh, people who used to work for big government corporations, so state-owned corporations, just big corporations. And they never had any problems uh, with the political regime. They felt, they felt absolutely fine. And now they found the new Russia uh, a very uncomfortable place. Because it is already very uncomfortable uh, in terms of um, economy, access to technologies, uh, and sanctions, yes, and the problem that, for instance, uh, it became really difficult to leave the country and get back, all of these problems. They are not really uh, driven by political reasons. They just feel really uncomfortable. So if we talk about political people, uh, it's mostly about the first three categories. Yeah, and which are the smallest groups, but uh, yes, they can be impactful. But so far, uh, and also you raised it in the book, uh, and now you raised it in the in the argument in the foreign affairs, that it's worth investing in them because they are trying usually to find uh, ways to influence the agenda in, in, in Russia. Now, my skepticism and my question generally is that Has it ever worked? And is it a little bit like the small group that isn't really so significant? Why Why would should someone listen also to your argument that it's worth investing in this group? Oh, that's a tricky question, but I have, a, but I have an answer. Because uh, most of independent journalists, the majority of independent journalists, they needed to emigrate, they needed to leave Russia because of... Uh, because the Russian parliament adopted the law against uh, the fake about the war, which means you can't write about war, you can't talk about war, you can't even call a war the war. So they left. Uh, a lot of media, many media, independent media, was blocked or shut down. Uh, and journalists also left. And But they didn't stop their activity. They didn't stop working. They continue, and many of them launched their own channels on YouTube. Many of them launched their own channels on Telegram, uh, which is not only popular messenger in Russia, but which is kind of media. And all all these channels, they are they became much more popular than job of the, than work of these journalists before. And you can check, like, uh, many of them have millions of subscribers on YouTube. And this is amazing. So it means they still uh, have connection with their audience in Russia. 
they doing their job and people and people consume their information. This is absolutely new factor and it never happened before because technically in the during the Soviet Union we didn't have the internet, we didn't have YouTube and many other things. And also it's uh, it's about IT people. It's a very tricky question for the Russian government. The thing is that to lose all of these people all of a sudden, so quickly, means a big problem uh, for, say, for keeping the, co- the country under control. It is quite interesting and quite paradoxical, but Russia is much more digitized than many European countries. It's much more digital, digitized than Germany, France, obviously. Uh, and to be honest, it might be comparable only to Japan and to Singapore. The thing is, why it happened is because the Russian government some years ago decided that Russian bureaucracy would be always really corrupt uh, and you cannot fix it like using normal methods like democracy, for instance. That is why they believed that technology might fix this problem of, uh, of a corrupt bureaucracy. So they started investing a lot in technologies. That is why so many things now uh, in the country are provided online. Like you can apply for your passport, you can pay your taxes, uh, you would be, and also it includes all these things about digital surveillance. You actually, you are kept under control by the government, by digital uh, tools. The problem is that all these technologies are developed by some people, by these people, by IT people. And now these people uh, live in the country and they eat thousands. So to keep this system working, they need to find some new people and some really uh, crazy ideas are now circulating in Moscow. For instance, they are trying to invite some IT specialists from Central Asia to replace the ones which are living in the country. There is also a crazy idea, uh, which I think is uh, it's a reflection of how bad the situation is, is to let people, IT specialists, who are already in prison, to still work for the companies. Which sounds very Stalinist in a way, like you imprison people and then you force them to work for you like a slave. That is also an idea circulated uh, in the Russian government because we need their people, these people. And this is getting, uh, this is becoming a political factor. Okay, we're talking about IT, we're talking also this idea about Russian sovereign internet. Uh, that's that the discussion of the of today and the future, the discussion of today and the past are also these groups. And I, this is the question, where are they coming from? All around the world, we've seen them in Australia, we've seen them in, in many places across Europe, of also Russian emigres of different sorts coming together and demonstrating in support of Russia uh, war in Ukraine. While, and this is my second point and the question to you, I don't see those people who emigrated, you know, in their own and best interest in the in the other societies they emigrated to, manifest sort of solidarity uh, with with Ukrainians. It's not exactly true, but because actually we, we see in London that uh, the recent Russian emigres uh, they just launched this anti-war committee. They are building some networks of uh, organizations helping Ukrainian, not Russian, but Ukrainian refugees. Also, we we have lots of friends in, who, are, who are right now based in Berlin. Uh, I mean, Russian friends. 
To be honest, it's quite astonishing. It's 100% of these people. They are going every day to the main tra uh, train station in Berlin uh, and helping, trying to help the Ukrainians with, uh, with the language, with, uh, with all the problems uh, the Ukrainians are facing right now. So actually, there are a lot of people who are trying to help, but the problem is that it's only the most recent wave of immigration. You're absolutely right that it doesn't apply to people who, for instance, emigrated in the 1990s or in the 1980s. These people are really very pro-Kremlin and it presents a big problem because you have this clash between the Russians who emigrated like 20 or 30 years ago and people who are moving out of the country right now. And let me give another example of uh, how Russian emigrants support Ukraine. There is a beautiful Russian colony in Montenegro, in Budva. Mm -hmm. And these people, they're friends of ours. And these people, they organized kind of um, kind of shelter for Ukrainians refugees. And they put a lot of efforts into this and they put a lot of money and they uh, uh, accepted refugees for two weeks and then uh, organized some kind for new life for them. So these are hard these are heartwarming examples and much you know much needed examples stories to be told but on the political level and political influence there are still these big messages and and images frankly in that stay in the media and so on so what do you do well, not you it's not your responsibility but uh, per, as authors and and you, but what those politically involved uh, Russians uh, can do, or even are they aware of this tension, of, of how they are presented in the public? Do they even care? Uh, because, frankly speaking, we have a strong you know, uh, image right now that all of Russians support. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's a big problem. And to be honest, it's not like it didn't start like yesterday. Uh, when we uh, researched for, for the competitors, like, and it was like three years ago, I remember what we were uh, talking to, uh, to these big um, names in Russian political immigration, like Kasparov, Khodorkovsky, some other people, asking them just one question, why you think and why you are not working with the Russian diasporas in the countries you are based right now, in Germany or in the UK or in the United States? because it looked like they completely neglected these people. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, that was the case. All of them told us the same story, that they believed that all these people were so down, they were so insignificant, that they believed that the most effective way to affect the political situation was to work directly with the political decision makers in the West, like promoting sanctions and all of that, but not to uh, talk to Russian diasporas. Mm -hmm. I think, and I still believe, it was a big, huge mistake. Because these people were completely neglected, and what they, they were left uh, without any, uh, I don't know, contact with these uh, political organizations uh, or political activists. And the only thing they, they had, they had this Russian television they watched day and night. And they became, well, victims of propaganda. And of course, also, it's sort of, well, Putin knew and knows how to appeal to them, to the feeling of uh, insecurity, of humiliation, of grievances against the West, all of that. So he knows how to play this game. And unfortunately, the Russian political immigrations, they just, um, political organization actually, uh, opposition political immigrations, they just, they didn't care for, mm. for too long. I think if I, a word of criticism in the proposal that you put forward, 
generally to make this work, you need funding, and that's clear. But what you seem to appeal for is that it becomes part of the efforts uh, from host countries to support this kind of groups of politically engaged and, and mobilizing the journalism activists continuously. I don't see that immediately happening also because of the war effort. So my question to you, it's more of a practical question. <laughs> Is it possible to see that those quite affluent and the biggest groups of people of IT sector are somehow finding a, an ecosystem of, uh, to, to support political action? Yes, we, we see some signs, but it's a, it is always a happening because we still have families in Russia, so we still, well, we, we care a lot about what is going on in Russia. And to be honest, this new generation of people in the IC business, they have... We, we, we want more of life than, say, the previous generation. They need respect, we need a good environment. They had lots of things that left in, in Russia, so we want to get back. They have their families, they have their apartments, they have duchess, everything. So they care. And uh, right now they are actually the audience of all these YouTube channels, and they are trying to understand how to help and receive. But for instance, there are some crowdfunding campaigns, how to collect money for the Ukrainians. There's some, um, the problem is that it's not immediately clear how to do, what to do about uh, the situation in Ukraine for these people. The problem is that, psychologically speaking, there is a huge divide between Russian and Ukrainian societies, like, which, which is a new thing. Uh, I mean, in 2014, the understanding in Moscow of what was going on in Ukraine was much better than, than now. Even the most liberal part of the Russian society knows very, very little about what is going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because of this, because the war is actually this conflict is going on for like eight years. For instance, we do not have um, Ukrainian authors published in Russia. Uh, the Ukrainian library was uh, was attacked by the FSB. Uh, we do not have Ukrainian like activists, well, being like active and present in 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 Moscow. I mean, before the war. So this connection between two countries, even between intellectuals of two countries, is much weaker than it was like before 2014. So this is the problem now. So how to... The Russian intellectuals, we just don't know. Sometimes we don't know how to talk to the Ukrainians. They do not know uh, how to start this, this conversation, especially because uh, because the Ukrainians, they seem to be, well, they, they have a war going on in their country. They, they have some business to do. I mean, it's not, well, they, they also are not really interested right now uh, in this kind of conversation. But money, money is not the main problem for Russian immigration, even for Russian IT people. The main problem they face, they, somehow they survive. They, they know how to make money. Global economy, IT, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. True. But the problem is they don't have documents, they don't have visas, they can't live, they can't live in EU because mm -hmm. uh, because uh, because it is not allowed for them. So so that's why many of them uh, had to they had to to live to for Armenia, Georgia. 
and even Kyrgyzstan. This is not the best places uh, for Russian immigrants, especially Georgia and Armenia. And a lot of political activists already faced a lot of problems with the authorities. I, that's a short-term problem, I think, and it's probably less problematic than all the other migration and refugee that is happening with Ukrainians, which leads me, leads me, you know, because uh, my last point and that I would just ask you for a short answer, yes or no. Would you agree that Ukrainians might be a vehicle for this diaspora uh, in explaining the Russians, especially there is some interaction about, you know, telling them the stories of, of Ukraine, that this uh, connection that is broken for the last eight years is built or rebuilt uh, differently, uh, but but exactly through these interactions uh, abroad right now. I think I think it's already happening. What actually is happening is that Russian media, independent media, which are now in exile, they are trying to send their reporters to Ukraine. They're also cooperating already with Ukrainian medias, exposing some. Uh, uh, some horrible stories which are happening in Ukraine. For instance, Medusa made a really good story about rapings and uh, in, in in Ukraine. And of course, they, they got help uh, from from the Ukrainians. Also, Zelensky, I think, was a really good thing. What he did, he actually he sat with Russian journalists and had these conversations. And then he again he had another conversation. So this is really good. Uh, and I think, actually, if we can get some progress, it's via this cooperation between journalists. Because the main thing, and I'm still, well, I might be too optimistic, but I still believe that we need to to get this message through uh, to the Russians who are still in Russia about what is going on in Ukraine. We need to explain it somehow. Mm-hmm. And of course, the problem is that the Russians who are still in, in, in Russia, sometimes they choose not to know. And the excuse they use is to say, we don't trust you. But if you use trusted voices, we used to trust before the war, maybe that may, can make some difference. I hope so. 